News on RTHK. trend for the last two to five years. Foreign financial services is known to be very tough. And traders trading all sorts of things. Volatility in the foreign exchange market. Money for nothing. Good morning and welcome to Thursday's Money for Nothing with me, Renita Malhotra-Hora. The U.S. Fed raises concerns over second quarter growth in the U.S. economy. Japan's Nikkei 225 rises to a new 15-year high and the Hong Kong exchange is set to increase the Stock Connect quota and seek tie-ups with Chinese commodity exchanges. As U.S. markets once again focus on the Fed's April minutes, uh, April meeting minutes, Asia, China and Japan stocks continue their rally. We'll discuss all of this with our markets guest this morning, Graham Bibby of the Richmond Group. We'll also talk to our South Asia correspondent, Murli Krishnan, about a debate that's raging in India over genetically modified foods. And finally, Morgan McKinley's Richie Holiday tells us about the latest bonus survey in Hong Kong's financial sector. And our regular Thursday guest host, Peter Lewis, is with us again. Good morning, Peter. Good morning, Renita. So, Peter, analysts were hoping to get past a weather-impacted Q1. Is the Fed concerned about more stormy days ahead? It is. If you look through the minutes that were uh, released last night, there was a lot of discussion about first quarter economic growth, which, as we know, was came in quite weak at just 0.2%, and a lot of discussion about whether that was transitory or not. And there are concerns that this weak growth may continue into the second quarter, particularly because of the strong dollar and also because of falling investment in the, uh, in the oil sector. The Fed is also worried about volatility in the market. What may happen after it raises rates? Is there enough liquidity to to cope with maybe a, a sell-off in the bond market. And for the very first time ever in Fed Minutes, they'd mentioned high-frequency trading and the impact that uh, that may have on volatility and volumes. And what is that? Well, high frequency, what could that be? <laughs> what they're concerned about is that a lot of the volume at the moment is coming from uh, these computer program trading firms, high-frequency traders we call them. Um, and if the market gets exceptionally volatile, will they just turn off their machines and go away? Yeah, and the minutes uh, of the meeting in particular cited the effects of a stronger dollar and a reduction in oil-related investment lasting longer than expected. The Renaissance uh, head of research... um uh, of U.S. economics, uh, Neil Datta, gives his assessment of when rates may rise. I think it's a little bit too early to tell exactly uh, how domestic demand is looking like uh, in the second quarter uh, and going forward. I mean, we know the housing market's in recovery. Consumer spending generally uh, is in, has been in recovery. Um, so I think it's a little bit too early to tell. Uh, we do know uh, for sure uh, that expectations for July and, uh, and June uh, at this point are, should be pretty much dead and buried. But uh, I, don't th- I think it's a bit too soon to be uh, torpedoing uh, the September rate hike call. The Fed minutes sent stocks to a new record before falling back later in the day. The Dow Jones Industrial Average closed down 26 points to 18,285. The S&P 500 touched a new high before closing down almost two points at 2,125. And the Nasdaq rose one point to 5,071.
And while stocks were mainly mixed, the S&P airline index tumbled 6% over fears of a price war to win market share. The U.S. dollar strengthened to uh, stand at uh, 0.3% higher against a basket of currencies, holding on to most of its gains after the release of the Fed minutes. Brent crude oil rallied 1.6% to 65 U.S. dollars a barrel. Well, six global banks will pay more than $5.6 billion in fines to settle allegations that they, were, that they rigged uh, foreign exchange markets. And this, of course, uh, follows previous fines imposed upon banks that were accused of manipulating interbank lending rates. So how prevalent is this type of behavior? Here is uh, Rosa Abrams-Metz. She's a professor at the New York uh, Stern School of Business. This type of behavior is very widespread. It is widespread across institutions. It is widespread across benchmarks. This has been going on for a long time. And we may be talking about a whole lot more than LIBOR and spot prices on FX. I say this is very worrying. On the one hand, it is important to have this guilty plea so that we all know that financial institutions are subject to the same rules as everyone else. They're not immune. On the other hand, it's concerning for those who believe, such as I do, that markets work, that we are finding that uh, financial benchmarks um, that are relevant for many hundreds of millions of dollars of transactions and contracts may have been systematically rigged, and and, um, that is a, a very concerning finding. And a new report from Moody's says that there's a high likelihood of capital controls being introduced in Greece. Moody's downgraded its assessment for Greek banks from stable to negative, citing significant deterioration in banks' funding and liquidity. In Japan, the Nikkei 225 rose 0.9% to a new 15-year high. Stocks were boosted by data showing that the Japanese economy grew by 0.6% in the first quarter of 2015. And uh, at an annualized pace of 2.4%, which exceeds, exceeds expectations. A week uh, yen trading at 121 against the U.S. dollar has also helped boost sentiment. And the Nikkei is up over 15% so far this year. By contrast, shares in car bag supplier Takata plunged by more than 8% after it announced that it would declare nearly 34 million cars defective, making it the largest consumer product recall in U.S. history. Goldman Sachs Asset Management International CEO Andrew Wilson gives us his assessment of the latest data out of Japan. It's interesting, that GDP number, the headline number was much stronger. Inventories were a big contribution, yeah. right? They were 2% contribution to that number. So I'd say we, we feel like Japanese growth looks a little more subdued. Uh, the surprise has been that the consumer hasn't really kicked in as much. So yeah. we've seen energy prices come down. I think a lot of it will depend on what's happening in the wage round. That took place in April. Yeah. We really start to get the details of that more June, July-ish. If we're seeing wage growth, and again, interesting number out of the GDP, is that real wages actually declined. So you need the consumer to kick in. The consumer's been remarkably stable. So we had some vol in GDP, but the consumer's been very stable post, of course, the the big consumption tax hike. And I think to get confident about a Japanese growth story, you really want to see more spending from the consumer. 
Hong Kong X uh, Chief Executive Charles Lee has announced that the Shanghai Hong Kong Stock Connect quota will increase very soon. He also hopes to establish links with commodity exchanges in China. Peter, how significant is this? Well, this could be very significant, Renita. China's the biggest importer of commodities in the world, but commodity prices are not formed on the exchanges in China because international investors can't trade um, on the on the Chinese commodities exchanges. So, for international investors, the prices are formed elsewhere in the world, but particularly on the LME in London, where a lot of the metals prices um, are, are created. So if um, if the Hong Kong exchange could do some sort of partnership with some of the uh, the Chinese commodities exchanges, we could then see real price formation out here in Asian time, maybe some new benchmarks being created here in, uh, in Asia, and that would in turn encourage more people to come and trade in these markets over here. So it could be a win-win situation for both the Hong Kong exchange and the Chinese exchange. Exchanges. The Hang Seng Index lost 0.4% or 108 points to finish at 27,585. Investors were unsettled by a plunge of 46% in the shares of Hanergy Thin Film Power before trading was suspended by the Hong Kong Exchange. Shares in the solar panel manufacturer had soared 249% over the past year, with mainland Chinese investors mainland Chinese investors active buyers of the stock. However, following the fall, 24 billion US dollars in market value was wiped out in just 24 minutes. Chairman Lee Hajun failed to attend the company's AGM yesterday, prompting speculation as to his whereabouts. Well, let's uh, bring in our first guest of the morning, uh, Graham Bibby, who is the CEO of uh, the Richmond Group. Good morning, Graham. Morning, Graham, uh, what do you make of this news about the chairman of Hanergy not showing up for his own company's AGM? Is, is this pretty uh, significant? Uh, well, it is obviously to the company, <laughs> uh, to, to what I do and the stock market trends overall, uh, not really. Um, <clears throat> yeah, I, I look at global markets and study 46 of them, and um, it, it's not a speculative trends anywhere, but you know, obviously on a on a, on a micro basis, um, <laughs> something's pretty significant happening if he doesn't turn up, and that's his, that's what's his, his All right, Grandma, it looks like, uh, you know, we're seeing a pickup in Japanese growth. Is that headline uh, GDP number encouraging, do you think? Well, yeah, I mean, Japan's been one of the uh, leading markets this year. Um, it's, not, it's not the top one right now. It's been going through a bit of a consolidation, but it's, it, it looks to me like it's about to start its next upward leg. So I'm all about actual market direction and trends and the fundamentals filtering behind that. Uh, so obviously, you know, things appearing to pick up is being represented in the index. Um, and I think to some degree, it's also representative of the Chinese market picking up. I see China, you know, continuing to... to, to uh, in its upward cycle, and I think it's going to take Asia with it, and it's going to benefit Japan as well. And, and what does this mean then in, in terms of uh, China as well? How, how about the PBOC? We've seen the Bank of Japan provide a lot of stimulus for the, the Japanese economy. The PBOC seems to be going down the, the, the same path. Do you expect any more easing from them this year? Well, it's actually on the line. It's quite difficult to hear you, but for me, Often bad news is good news, and good news is bad news. So what I've been encouraged by uh, this year is the fact that um, Europe started off um, bringing in quantitative, effectively quantitative easing, so that's going to support that market. 
And obviously China is doing something very, very similar because it appeared the economy was slowing faster than it wanted. Um, it's put measures on the property market uh, throughout China and in Singapore and Hong Kong. And then there's restrictions on, more restrictions on going to Macau. And then they've started to ease uh, interest rates. So I think the next game in town has been the share market. And I think global managers overall for the last few years have felt that China um, was you know, a bit undervalued, but the market hasn't really gone anywhere since it's blip in 1995. So the Shanghai stock market was where it was 12 years ago. So now the retailers have got in there, started the market moving. I believe this is the first leg in a, in a more prolonged bull market for the equity market. But if you're an international fund manager, many, many foreign firms believe that the, the Chinese market is still relatively cheap compared to, say, the US and other international markets. But nevertheless, the speed of the rally um, is, is quite spectacular. Does that concern people at the moment? No, it doesn't, actually, because, um, again, you know, it's been under-owned, the Chinese stock market. Uh, the actual, you know, I, where I access um, through my newsletters and uh, buy signals, I access normally through ETF. And to give you an example, PEK, which is one of the China ETFs uh, listed in the U.S., you know, it's risen from 28 to 62, um, but it was coming off such a low. So you expect um, high percentage returns to start with. Um, and it corrected, but you know, you know the stop loss is now at 60, about 62, and it appears to me, you know, we're on the next upward leg in the, in the Chinese equity market. So, um, you know, I'm all about the trend is your friend, and if it continues to go, then you know we'll follow it. Um, it China reminds me a lot of the Japanese stock market in the early 80s. Um, you know, when that was the start of its bull market, which went on for nine years um, after never seeming to break through. I've seen him for quite a number of years. Um, so for me, you know, just as part of a portfolio, I think China's a good place to be. All right, Graham, thank you uh, so much for joining us this morning. That's Graham Bibby. He is the CEO of the Richmond Group. The Nikkei is up 0.08% to 20,213. Australia's uh, ASX 200 is up uh, 0.09% to 5,116. And Seoul's Kospi down just slightly 0.02% to 2,139. In currencies, the euro currently stands at 1.11 US dollars. Uh, the U.S. dollar is trading at 121 yen, 121.20 yen, and uh, one pound sterling buys you 12 Hong Kong dollars and five cents, or one U.S. dollar and 55 cents. The time is now 8.17 a.m. and the Indian subsidiary of multinational biotech from Monsanto is expected to submit uh, final trial results for its genetically modified corn to India's lawmakers and that's within a year. Now, on the basis of the results, the government will decide on a commercial launch but uh, it's not going to be easy. Those sections within Prime Minister Narendra Modi's government uh, argue that allowing GM crops is critical to boosting poor farm productivity in the country. Farmers' organizations oppose its introduction. Our South Asia correspondent Murli Krishnan tells us more about this debate. Good morning, Murli. 
morning. So, Murli, we know that uh, GMO seeds and particularly corn are gaining steam in both the U.S. and uh, the rest of the world as well. What is the opposition in India all about and who's resisting it? Actually, I think they're trying to harvest controversy out here with GMO crops in India. You know, uh, commercial launch is not going to be so easy. You know, after six years of trials in India, uh, you know, GM corn, not currently allowed in the country, is nearing its final phase. And uh, Monsanto's Indian subsidiary plans to share these results with the government uh, very soon with, uh, for expanding crops in the country. Uh, the company says the corn is insect and herbicide tolerant and is expected to raise yields up to almost about 30%. And besides corn, um, this field trials for five other genetically modified crops, such as eggplant, maize, rice, chickpea, as well as cotton, are currently being conducted in many other states. So therefore, it's an issue which has obviously has, um, uh, uh, which has got a lot of sensitive issues, especially in a country like India, which has got, uh, uh, which about seventy percent of this country still is on uh, lives on agrarian uh, is an agrarian economy. Despite the fact that India is going fast, and we know that you know GMO seeds, particular uh, corn, as is, as you rightly pointed out, was is going steam. But I was uh, talking to Ashish Gupta, who is from the Organic uh, Farming Association of India, who is setting up to promote organic farming and as well as sort of influence other government agencies and departments to pay more attention to sustainable agriculture. And this is what he said. Companies like Monsanto, Syngenta, all the companies which are involved with plant biotechnology are seeming to indicate that this is a you know, win-for-all situation. It is an elixir for humankind. Whereas the negative downsides, socio-economic negative downsides, even the technological downsides like the horizontal gene transfer, loss of biodiversity, are simply pushed under the carpet and ignored. So, but uh, Monsanto's subsidiary uh, is lobbying hard. I mean, what do they have to say? Oh, they, they, this, they're obviously pushing the case very well. And the fact is, but more importantly, like I, like I mentioned, is that they have to uh, sort of quell opposition within the government itself. Uh, you know, there are two uh, important organizations uh, within the government which, which still carry a lot of currency, like, for example, to dispel fears of uh, genetically modified crops. He has to first convince... You know, it's uh, uh, right-wing African groups like the Swadeshi Jagran Manch and the Bharti Kisan Sangh. You know, these are both grassroots organizations who are opposing the introduction of these crops. And even Environment Minister Prakash Javdekar, I mean, I mean he seems to be non-committable about the commercial launch, but Monsanto is pushing its case hard and... Uh, and more, more importantly, is that it's trying to influence, it's trying to tell everyone that this is something which can't go wrong because the fact is the world is uh, adopting it. And Bhargava Chaudhary, uh, he's a, he, been, he was the person who I spoke to, uh, and he was a strategic initiative director of uh, international service for the acquisition of agrobiotech applications. And look, this is a non-profit international organization which shares the benefits of 
crop biotechnology to various stakeholders. And this is what he said. If they cannot improve their productivity per unit area, per day sunlight, their income cannot be increased. So it is so important for countries like India that, you know, technologies, not only first generation, but now you're talking about third generation technologies, including the drought-tolerant maize, which is being grown on 375,000 hectares in the United States. So it is important that you give a package of technologies, including insect resistance, herbicide-tolerant, and then you stack that with the drought-tolerant technologies. All right, Murli, thank you uh, so much. It certainly is a complex, uh, uh, you know, problem, uh, but hopefully there is a way forward. Thanks for joining us this morning. That is Murli Krishnan, and he is our South Asia correspondent on the phone from India. The Electoral Affairs Commission has published the proposed guidelines on election-related activities in respect of the District Council election for public consultation. You can send a written submission by June 3rd. The proposed guidelines are available at the Commission's website, www.eac.gov.hk, the Registration and Electoral Office, and the Public Inquiry Service Centers of District Offices. For inquiries, please call 2891-1001. The time is now 8.23 a.m., and we're just about past bonus time in the banking industry characteristically a time when bank employees glow from the rewards uh, of last year's hard work or the disgruntled handful might actually begin considering other alternatives. Morgan McKinley has just conducted its latest bonus survey amongst banking professionals in Hong Kong. The APAC uh, Chief Operations Officer Richie Holiday is with us this morning. Good morning, Richie. Good morning. So, Richie, which banks uh, are included in your survey and what do the trends uh, tell us? Yeah, good morning. Um, primarily, we uh, the, the trend that we found across the bonus survey, we, we conducted it in a number of different disciplines. Um, the investment banking one was conducted with primary markets, uh, investment banking professionals. Uh, so these are guys operating in Hong Kong uh, in areas such as sector coverage or um, regional coverage. Obviously, China coverage would be included in that. M&A, uh, DCM and ECM. So um, it was cap- capturing everybody's uh, opinions on the bonus uh, that they received for the, the 2014 and 15 year. Um, the feedback actually was generally very positive. Uh, it's been a significant proportion of respondents indicated that uh, they had an increase from previous years. Uh, so I think that's 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 good, a good news story. Now, Richie, uh, when you come to sort of analysts and associates, so the more junior positions, uh, is it more rewarding to be an analyst or an associate in Hong Kong as opposed to, say, London or New York? Um, yeah, it's a good question. I think it depends really uh, on, on which area you're operating within uh, the organization. I mean, uh, Hong Kong obviously has a, a very positive outlook. It's, it's remained in, in quite a positive place over the last number of years. Um, you know, we've got the stability and, and the confidence improving in the markets. Uh, we've got normalized growth in China, which is now being experienced. And, and Hong Kong is, you know, uniquely positioned to take advantage of that. Uh, so analysts and associates here uh, have benefited this year from that. And actually the survey found um, that analyst and associate base salary pay has also been rising as well as they've um, been achieving bonuses. So um, that's actually above normal um, for the market, either here or in London. Um, so that's, you know, in, that's interesting. And perhaps it's... Uh, 
pointing to an increased desire to build revenues through higher volumes of deal flow, um, you know, at that level. So, so it's, it's interesting. clearly you're suggesting that, you know, when, when there is a bull run or when markets are doing better, um, you know, that goes sort of hand in hand with compensation. Now, the assumption is that as you rise the ranks, so does your bonus. And that seems to be what the survey suggests as well. But, the, you know, is that really true? I mean, are MDs and higher level, you know, uh, employees getting... Uh, the big bonuses that they used to? Um, they're certainly not getting the bonuses they used to, um, but I'd say the assumption that as you rise through the ranks, the, the quantum of your bonus is likely to rise uh, is true. I'd say, however, that the, the survey founding, uh, findings have indicated that actually at VP level as opposed to um, uh, director level, um, the, the amount of bonus paid in terms of months will actually be larger. So a larger percentage of your overall compensation can come from bonus um, as opposed from basic salaries. So Richard, we reported earlier today on um, the story about six global banks having to pay almost $6 billion in fines to settle allegations of um, rate rigging in the foreign exchange markets. Is that having an impact at all on bonuses out here in Asia? I know in Europe certainly it is because bonuses, you know, regulators are trying to cap bonuses. Are people coming out here to try and escape that and, you know, are bonuses being affected? at all? I think the, um, the EU bonus cap, I mean, been, that's been obviously uh, quite highly um, publicised recently, particularly with the uh, attempts by several organisations to sidestep the, the Euro banking authority restrictions there. Um, I think the, the limits and the caps that are being proposed in, in Europe um, are in the back of people's minds. But I would say that at the moment, it's not the primary reason why people would move. Um, so it, it's, it is a factor that some people consider, but it, it's not the primary reason. But shouldn't bonuses and remunerations actually be used to try and encourage better behaviour amongst financial firms? And that includes here in Asia as well. Uh, yes, I'd agree. And, and I would say that bonuses traditionally um, haven't had the capacity to be clawed back. Um, and I think that when, when you look at what's happened um, over the last number of years where bonuses have been in the spotlight uh, for organisations potentially that haven't been performing, the ability to, to have those bonuses or that compensation vest over a number of years does now give that flexibility back to the employer. Richie, what about uh, local versus international banks? Local banks pay less, do they not? Uh, no, that's not necessarily true. I'd say that um, it depends on the position that you're in. And in fact, uh, if, if you look at what's happening with um, uh, some of the multinationals, they're being quite restricted on, on the bandings that they can offer to people in terms of compensation. Uh, and actually, if you're working in, a, in an organisation that has um, a little bit more flexibility, potentially a local bank, uh, then they can be more flexible there. So if you're making a move from a multinational uh, or an international uh, foreign bank to a local bank, you might actually be able to negotiate a, a better package. All right, Richie, thank you so much for joining us this morning. That is Richie Holiday, and he, he is the APAC Chief Operations Officer at Morgan McKinley. Let's take another quick look at the numbers now. The Nikkei is up three-tenths of a percent to 20,262. Australia's ASX 200 index is up three-tenths of a percent to 5,633. And Sold's Cosby down a quarter of a percent to 2,134. Gold currently stands at $1,209.50 per ounce and Brent crude oil at $64.90. So, Peter, here we are once again at the end of Thursday. Are there any significant events occurring over the remainder of the week that we should be looking out for? Well, we've got China's flash PMI coming. That will be um, significant. And also Janet Yellen is speaking at a conference on Friday in, in Providence in the, uh, in the US. I think in many ways this will be more significant than the Fed minute.
minutes because this will give a much more up-to-date view on what the Fed thinking is about um, the economy, whether or not the slowdown is likely to continue and give us some sort of signs about when interest rates are likely to rise. And we'll have a miss the chance to talk about that on Monday because it'll be a public holiday. Well, that's what Tuesday's for, right? <laughs> All right, Peter, thank you so much for joining us this morning. Uh, and every Thursday morning as guest host, that's Peter Lewis of Peter Lewis Consulting. And if you'd like to uh, send any questions to Money for Nothing or to Peter specifically on a Thursday, uh, do post something on our Facebook page, which is facebook.com forward slash money for nothing. I'm Renita Malhotra Hora, closing up for this morning. A quick look at the weather forecast for today. It'll be cloudy to overcast with showers and a few squally thunderstorms. The temperature right now is 25 degrees Celsius and the relative humidity is 97%. Time for the half-hour news summary with Samantha Butler. The Cathay Pacific Flight Attendants Union is planning to protest outside the company's office near the airport at 10 a.m. In a statement last night, it said it was extremely disappointed with management, accusing them of neglecting staff complaints. Yesterday, Cathay's chief executive, Ivan Chu, said management was ready to hold talks, but the union said it hadn't yet received any invitation. Union members have set a deadline of 10 o'clock for their demands on better pay and benefits to be discussed, otherwise they'll escalate their action. Dora is the union's chairwoman. As union representative, we still want to show our sincerity to talk, but we actually want to talk that is constructive and to the point. We do not wish to conduct a meeting that wasting each other's time and not to address the damage on the team spirit. The Syrian city of Palmyra appears to have fallen to Islamic State militants, leaving one of the greatest archaeological